Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, are you being bombarded with political ads? How do you feel about it? And how do you feel about the term genocide being used to describe our Indigenous situation? Polling shows that the majority of Canadians have been fooled by fake news and people are losing trust in the internet. So what are we missing? And how one individual used popcorn to get back on the right track after prison. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, if you're watching the game last night, you no doubt saw the political ads. It's like, my God. The only good news about any of this stuff is that as of June 30th, any third-party advertising spending of more than 500 bucks will have to register with Elections Canada. Uh, those third-party ads may only spend a total of $1 million between June 30th and the dropping of the writ, which is October 21st, the general election. During the writ period, third parties uh, will be prohibited from spending more than $500,000 on any ads. There is also a writing-level spending limit of about $10,000. Uh, in the pre-writ period. Uh, so, my goodness, uh, I guess uh, there's an open uh, an open scenario here uh, where the regulations don't apply, so you're just going to see lots of this stuff uh, until the end of the month, and then and then I guess uh, the rules change and, and things are different. But, boy, it was, uh, it's, you know, I don't think anybody likes, they say that they work. They say that they work. Do we got? Are we ready to go? We ready to go. Uh, they they say that they work, but I don't know anybody that likes watching them. Anyway, let's talk about that and uh, other things that are floating around the planet. Oh yeah, I want to run the clips first. Okay, uh, here is an example of the two uh, clips that we're talking about. One is for, and these are run by uh, third party advertisers who we'll tell you about later. But these are ba- here, is which one's first? The liberal. Uh, is it from the liberals or or against the liberals, or is it for the conservatives or against the conservatives? <laughs> this one's the first one is against the liberals. Well, it's been four years. Let's talk about Justin. We should start with what he promised: a balanced budget. And that didn't happen. He promised electoral reform. That was a lie. Have you seen the price of gas lately? His carbon tax is making it too expensive to drive. That's what he wants. He doesn't get people like us. It's clear he's in over his head. He's certainly not his father. Justin Trudeau. He was never ready. Is there anybody in that ad that's under 90? Uh, All right, here is the one against the Conservatives. Andrew Scheer. Another conservative prime minister? He's a yes-man to the 1%. He'd say yes to tax cuts for the richest Canadians. And big business? He'd say yes to their tax cuts too. Following Doug Ford with conservative health care cuts? Hell yes. Shear's a yes-man to them, and that means no to you. Andrew Shear. His weakness will cost you. Learn more at shearweakness.ca. Did they say hell yes? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And, and the, the spring was, there's no visual here. That's sort of like a, a Andrew Shear bobblehead doll with his kind of hokey-dokey head on the top. All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, a principal at Alyssa PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you so much for the time. 
Well, of course, Scott. When you call, I answer. Oh, I'm so happy about that. And mm-hmm. and so are the listeners. So did you uh, did you watch the game last night? Did you see these ads? Like every 10 seconds, it appears? Yes, I did. I was actually not shocked by them, but I certainly took notice of them. So what are your thoughts? Everybody says that these work. I don't know. I just find them aggravating. I think they're they're, they're just childish. Well, you may find the, them aggravating, but I still think they work. And Listen, the rule of advertising goes like this. You really have to hear something three times in order for it to start to penetrate your brain. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you have like this perfect storm come together. A, there is going to be an election in October. B, the largest cross-Canada viewing audience is going to be in one place yep. between 9 p.m. Eastern and 12 midnight. Yep. Why not take advantage of that? I mean, everybody's got... Um, you know, media gurus within their own parties. And it's a golden opportunity. And the Raptors have become Canada's team. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is watch SportsCenter and we see, or SportsNet, I don't want to get the wrong thing, Hepatitis, TSN. And we, and you know what, we see all the viewing parties happening from coast to coast. So they're all there. It's almost forced viewing. They're Mm -hmm. all captured in one place. And why not take advantage of that? It's just not the viewing parties, but it's everybody in their uh, in their individual homes. I haven't seen any of the numbers yet of the viewing audience, but it is a bonanza for yeah. anybody who is selling advertising right now. No, I can totally understand that. Let's talk about the messages from each. Uh, uh, it, it appeared, and you can give me your your critique. Uh, the liberals, uh, the one against the liberals, were was a checklist of he didn't bring us this, he didn't deliver. Uh, the sheer one appeared that he's weak, that he's got sort of a bobblehead doll and a you know bozo the clown kind of kind of thing, howdy doody thing. So one is that Shear's weak. One is that the other one didn't deliver. Let's start with with Shear um, painting him as weak from the Trudeau camp. D- does that sell? You know what could? It's interesting. It's it's obviously that they're not um, totally pinning this whole commercial on a particular issue, but they're leading with he's weak. And, you know, simplicity in commercials work. So you have seen every time the conservatives do a commercial or an anti whoever fill in the blank commercial, their their messaging is pretty is pretty singular. You sort of think, well, is this the best they can come up with? But it, you know it works. So if you recall back in the days when the liberals had Michael Ignatia front run, you know his whole message was, well, he's not even from here. Or mm-hmm. he's just yep, visiting. Yep, yep. So super super simple. You don't have yep. to think. It, you don't have to take it to no new level. taxes. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then, it's, you know, it's the same thing. So, you know, you look at the conservative advertising about Trudeau. He was never ready. And I have to tell you, I think that the messaging is crisp, but, but I will tell you that the execution of that commercial, those commercials are clunky. Clunky. You're supposed to be having a group of people, and obviously they're of an older generation because they refer to his father. Mm-hmm. So you have a group of uh, older people in a quote-unquote natural conversation. Can you imagine the director saying, okay, everybody act natural like you're having a conversation? <laughs> and it, it, it almost loses me when you know how, when you see how scripted it is. Mm. It loses its quote-unquote cinema verite, yeah. uh, you know, uh, quality. And so that part of that commercial really, you know, smacks false with me. But, you know, the part about he's weak with the bobblehead doll and that sound that goes with it, that boing, boing, boing yeah. sound, 
especially if you're watching the basketball game and every time yeah. I shoot a three-pointer that makes sense, <laughs> which I continually imitate at home, and my husband says, will you stop that? <laughs> and I'm like, no. See, that does nothing for your sports cred, uh, your sports credibility yeah, that you were selling there a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. But you know what? And so, therefore, the message is really simple. Yeah. And what I found intriguing, though, about the Liberals' commercial, um, about the conservative commercial about Trudeau was, well, he's certainly not his father. Yes. And, you know, that is the first time I have heard that. And I think that there may have been, through their research, they unearthed some sort of narrative that comes from an older generation, because you can segment it. I'm sure lots have been thinking that. I'm sure lots have been thinking that. I agree. And Mm -hmm. you only get that out through when you do focus groups. Yeah. Or you're doing uh, calling on behalf of a, a pollster, right? Mm. So, and these, you know, you tease out these narratives and, you know, their analysts look and look and look and see, is there a nugget? Is there something that we can exploit here? And they saw that. He, well, he's not his father. And they probably saw it more than once, mm-hmm. maybe two, three, four times. And that's certainly representative of a larger population sample. And so they popped it in. I think we have to remember that the ads that we're seeing, they're still a bit of a test before they refine their final messaging as we get closer to the election. I just thought it was odd that the message that the liberals were trying to portray him as weak because I'm sitting there and I'm thinking they're calling him weak. Isn't the perception of Trudeau being weak in that he can't deliver, he overpromises, he underdelivers? Um, uh, and, and and just hasn't been able to, to drive certain issues over the goal line. So to me, th- that resonates in the reverse in the sense, well, wait a sec, is, is he weaker than the prime minister is? And then the whole idea that Doug Ford's going to bully Andrew Scheer and Doug Ford's going to be running the country? I don't know. I, I just think, wow, wait a sec. Isn't it the prime minister that's accused of being weak? And, and now they're almost trying to switch the message over to him. You know, like the he's not ready sort of thing over to him. It seems to be, if you look at the continu- continuum of political weakness, so you look at Trudeau and the way he's being positioned is, is that he never was he's not, he never was what he was. Or what he yeah, promised. like McLean's calling him the imposter. Yeah. And so, you know, you can talk about all the things that went wrong with a certain litany of it. So do you want to go through the laundry list? No. So you position him as weak, knowing that then the liberals come back at it and say, well, you think we're weak? Well, let's look at this guy. And when you combine, like, what is stronger, I guess, in the mind of the average consumer? Is it a group of people saying, well, he was never as advertised? Or is it a visual visual of a bobblehead with a boingy sound that sticks in people's minds? So, yes, we talk about the narrative, the words of mm-hmm. weakness. But what is it that, you know, when you put all the concepts yeah. together yeah. of each respective commercial, what is it that resonates and that you remember? Mm-hmm. And you know what I remember? Are you ready? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the bobblehead doll going back and forth. So... And, and, and like I said, let's remember. But you know what? I, I don't know. To me, you're taking a party that has traditionally been portrayed as no feelings, cold, they'll do anything. And now you're trying to paint the guy like a he's not like that at all. He's not a mean man. He's not going to take everything away from you. He's just goofy. He's just, you know, he's weak. 
and that Doug Ford's going to be running the province, or sorry, the, the country. And I, I don't know if that sells. And if anything, I think Andrew Scheer's softer image works better for the conservatives because they're painted as being the exact opposite. You know, the conservatives are being painted like Donald Trump, like every, like Doug Ford, and, and, and you know, like a big aggressive uh, uh, right-wing leader who doesn't care anything about social policies. So I'm not sure if that plays into the narrative. Yeah, you know... It, because I think it's his hokey-dokiness that will help him in the end. Because people are tired of the slick and charismatic and all form, no substance. Yeah, you know what? I, I think, though, that this is just the first salvo, Scott, really. I think that they're starting off with sort of the you know, the weak bobblehead imagery. And then I think that as different narratives start to land and start to um, create resonance in Canadian psyche, they will go more on an issues-based platform. All right, let me ask you about the genocide term. Well, yes, there's that. Because he came out, I mean, many thought this was just going to go away, and now he's come out and said, mm, I don't know if that's a term I'd use. Listen, words matter. And when I first heard genocide, I thought, genocide? You know, is, is that, what kind of word is that to use? Is it a word because you want to appease your main stakeholder? Maximum impact, first, maximum. And, and yes, no. First Nations communities. Do you want to create headlines to ensure that they appear everywhere and every across all media across Canada to ensure action on the 94-plus recommendations? Um, however, I think that when those of us hear genocide, and let me tell you, I have started to see those uh, clips of you know calling it a genocide starting to appear in American-based uh, Instagram posts, mm. going, you know, your news for today, Canada calls, uh, you know, this issue a genocide. Yeah. You know, for me, a, a genocide is a planned and systematic elimination of a race. That's where so, it, that's that's where Rwanda. I, yeah, you know what? And, and I guess Holocaust. Yes, and and academics can debate. The, I, I guess the term, but I don't think if you ask the average Canadian, even if they feel they were complicit in this, because there is no intent. There well, might have been the, intent a hundred years ago. When but, we talk about the importance of words, right? We say. What I'm hearing now about the term genocide is that, well, it's not just regular genocide. It's a slow-moving colonial genocide. Yeah. Okay, you may want to qualify this as much as you want, but unless you're listening to another program that's got a half hour dedicated to talking to four experts about the meaning of genocide, then you are not going to get all the nuances as to why they called it a genocide. So yeah. from what I understand, it's, Genocide, but not necessarily genocide. So it's genocide, but it's slow moving. It's genocide, but yeah. it has it's it's rooted in colonialism. It's genocide with an asterisk. Well, I exactly. And I don't think you know, in just my own water cooler conversations with you know people that I know, they are not they are not on the genocide side. To be quite honest, they think that that term is really inflammatory yeah. and it doesn't speak to something that they believe. Do they believe that the gravity of the situation? is high and that something needs to be done about it? Yes. Do they think that the label that's been put on it accurately describes what has happened? No. It's going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds. Because, yeah. again, when when uh, uh, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls report came out, uh, there was a lot of chatter about this, and then it kind of died from the media. 
And then Andrew Shear was asked about it again, and he, in you know, very eloquently didn't define it. Just said, "I wouldn't use, you know, I'm not, I'm not using that word to describe it." Uh, well, he and I'm paraphrasing. And I'm paraphrasing because his government is, is as involved in all everybody. Of this, yeah, everybody. You know, yeah. from the beginning of time. So is so this not a liberal problem? It's, it's, it's all Canadian. So problem. let me ask you this. Let me play devil's advocate here. Is this just us being sensitive and not willing to admit what the hell we have done here? It's a genocide. Get used to it. Take the paper over the nose and go on. I think the problem with using the word genocide is that because so many people have an adverse reaction to it, I think that the use of the word was meant to spur action on some of the 94 recommendations in the report. What I think it's going to do now is have that report sit on desks and not um, initiate some of those changes that, quite frankly, some of them are, are, are should, should, be, should yeah. be implemented. Yeah. But people are not going to be so fast to do it. Why? Because then it confirms right. that this was a genocide, and therefore you were supporting it by making these changes. So does that put the Cana- the average Canadian uh, citizen right up there with Hitler and, and Rwanda and everything else? Does that uh, well? That's what that that's the inference. It is not what it means. It is not what it means. But it is the inference from the average person listening to saying that this was a genocide, and the first thing that they leap to. The first thought that they leap to is not colonialism and not that it's slow moving. It's that, well, I didn't have anything to do with this. Yeah. And people are not cottoning on to that. And I think that's a very, it was an inside baseball term that was used by people who have been working on the file for many years. And we know that this file has had its problems. Um, you know, when the commission was first started, it had changed in leadership. People were, you know, fleeing, uh, being on the board of the commission and, 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 and working on this file. So it certainly had its trials and tribulations. So in order to bring it to a pause, like not to a positive, but in order to bring it to a conclusion with impact, the direction that they chose may have not help for the, the, the cause at the end of the day. It was interesting, John Iveson, we had him on from the National Post reported on this and, and, and said when this came out way back when, he was one of the first to say, you know, uh, that people will get so caught up in this term that they'll lose, it'll lessen the impact of this report. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, it, it, as you mentioned, uh, if you have to define the term every time you use it, then perhaps it's not accurate. 110%. All right, Alyssa Freeman has been with us, a principal at Alyssa PR. Always, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Enjoy the beautiful day. I certainly will. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, since pretty much the election of Donald Trump, there's been lots of chatter in, in, in Russian influence and, and fake ads and, and um, ads that are specifically targeted towards those that think the same and then perhaps stretch them even a little farther uh, into one direction or another. And it's pretty much the last election where you know, people always talked about this, but it's certainly where it became really predominant in the United States. Now, uh, lots concerned as... Uh, we move forward with the uh, federal election coming up in the fall and how this uh, will affect the outcome. Already seeing this in parts of Europe as well and, and worried about the next U.S. election as well. So uh, polling shows that the majority of Canadians have been fooled by fake news and people are losing trust in the Internet and the need for media literacy is bigger than ever. To talk more about all of this, Jennifer Ellen Good is with us, Associate Professor of Communications, Pop Culture and Film at Brock University and is with us now. Jennifer, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, I, that's great. Thanks so much, Scott. 
You know, it's interesting because we were talking not that long ago, uh, a few years ago, where people weren't really interested in traditional media. Nah, I'm not buying any of that. I'm going to, uh, you know, get my stuff tailor-made for me off the Internet. Does the pendulum seem to be swinging back? Hmm. Well, maybe. Uh, I mean, I I think that that there's always been uh, an interest in uh, more sort of traditional, if you want, uh, news sources, uh, but they've, we've accessed them in different ways, so we may not watch linear television and get the news that way. We uh, might turn to, uh, you know, the traditional news, but websites. Uh, but certainly we've, we've been accessing uh, news in much more, um, we think of media sometimes as push media and pull media, and social media allows us to pull, you know, media that we might be interested in, and we also get lots of push media from sources way beyond in addition to traditional news sources. So I don't know if it's so much we've, a pendulum has, has swung as that there's a much wider variety of kinds of sources that we're turning to. Uh, fascinating uh, article in the conversation penned by you, The Urgent Need for Media Literacy in an Age of Annihilation. Explain that headline. Okay, yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, well, so one of the, the aspects of, of media effects um, studies, media effects research that, that I and, and lots of others have looked at over the years is not just uh, the influence, the, the effects of content that we, that we receive, but also the influence and effects of content that we do not receive. So what stories are are not told to us, and what are the implications for stories that are not told to us? And so what I really wanted to explore is uh, media literacy. It's been talked about for, for decades, but maybe is more important now than, than ever before. And uh, do we talk about it? So in amongst talking about Facebook, in amongst talking about Twitter, uh, fake news, all these kinds of, of you know, ideas and terms, uh, in amongst that, do we talk about media literacy? And I just went about actually looking at, in this case, uh, you know, newspapers. And what we find is, right, we talk about Twitter and Facebook and fake news a lot, <laughs> and and uh, we we don't talk about media literacy really at, at all. Well, it seems that if we have a difference of opinion, rather than agreeing to disagree or having a healthy debate about it someone's fake or it you know so i mean there's a difference between fake news and a story that's that's not true there's a difference between that and just a differing of opinion or a story that is viewed differently than what you do right i mean i i think there are a a number of of interesting perhaps problematic aspects of of the media world in in which we live so, uh, I mean, I think some of it is that increasingly we can live in echo chambers. Uh, we can live in, um, um, you know, places where we just access messages and, and stories that we, we, we want to, you know, hear or, or read. Uh, we're also in increasingly uh, polarized media, uh, you know, media world mm-hmm. where there are just these real extremes. I think one of the aspects of it that I'm, I'm especially interested in is maybe not like in, in those really polarized places, like you, in your intro, you were uh, talking about people who are becoming skeptical of, of, you know, maybe social media messages. They think they've been fooled. They're skeptical of, of the messages. Um, 
I, I, I mean, that's interesting, and I also think what's, what's really interesting is, uh, uh, you know, traditional media uh, sources, traditional media messages that we get, are we able to think uh, thoughtfully, are we able to think critically across all those kinds of media content that we're receiving? Are, are we able to, and I, I, you know, I finish up this piece by saying, do we, can we do it, can we learn to do this sort of reflexively, so no matter, uh, you know, what context we're in, uh, what, what uh, you know, media, social media, uh, big, uh, you know, sort of mass media, huge reach kind of media, are we thinking about the message that, messages that we receive reflexively and, and, uh, and critically? Why do we have to look at media differently now than we did 30 years ago, or should we have looked at it the same way then? Well, that, I think that's a great question, um, and, and one of the, the researchers, one of the thinkers I, I quote in my, in my piece is Neil Postman, who 30-plus years ago was saying, we better start thinking critically about all, all media content that, that we receive. So arguably, yes, we, we should have, uh, and we did to a certain extent. I but mean, it was easier to control because there was very few outlets. Absolutely. Yeah. It was easier to control, and it was much more broadly, you know, cast out to us. Yeah. Now we're in our social media homes, our social media comfort zones, and getting these messages. And that's really, that, that's a, a really tricky place to get uh, some of these messages. So where are we illiterate? What are we missing? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think I would make the case that we're missing not that it's uh, what's true, what's not true, you know, what's what, you know, what's fake news or not, you know, et cetera. And and it's one of the reasons I think that that Trump uh, has gained some traction with the whole fake news label is is that he he's able to to say to us, look, it's either this or it's that. And and I would propose. Uh, if we can think much more broadly that all media comes to us from uh, from particular places, from particular you know people, from an influence source, from, absolutely, yeah. from, from all, every source frames the world in a in a particular way, and we need to to in, increasingly uh, uh, think about that, no matter what the messages that we're receiving. Will this experience teach us? And I guess that's what I meant about the pendulum swinging back. Well, you know, if you get burned a couple of times, you realize, oh, yeah, maybe this isn't what I thought it was. Uh, which experience do we think? As we, consume, as we consume social media, as we consume the Internet, will we learn what is healthy, what isn't? What is accurate, what isn't? <laughs> well, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, I, I... Too optimistic? <laughs> I... Um, well, I, I I hope so, and and uh, I, I have a you know I have a, a young daughter who who uh, seems somewhat savvy about not always, uh, but seems to be learning both in formal education contexts and then you know life more generally to uh, to, to to question what's coming at her. Uh, I hope that some of these big media stories, uh, elections, and and. Uh, that, that, you know, and, and foreign influence and that those kinds, that that will encourage us to not just in those kinds of, of situations, but also across the board that we ask questions about what media content we're receiving. 
Is, is that what's happening with the younger generation? Are they learning that? Are they learning how to edit themselves through this process? <laughs> huh. You, uh, you, the the jury is out. I have to say, yeah. I'm, I'm not. It's not clear to me. It's clear that there are um, the the you know the Momo the Momo prank mm. uh, that yeah. was recently in the in the media. I was struck by that, and some of these more. Uh, Hmm. Like maybe a little bit flying under the radar that that there's so much content that that uh, we're all receiving, young people maybe in particular, uh, and it's it's sort of exhausting to be constantly critical of or not even critical of, just thoughtful about the content that that we're receiving and and. Uh, so I, I really think that yes, it needs to be in, in education and you know formal education absolutely. And I you know I, I think it's the reading, writing, arithmetic, and, and uh, media literacy I, I'd like to propose. But I, I also it's for it's for all of us. And like you pointed out, with an upcoming election, uh, you know, watching watching the Raptors game, seeing these ads coming in. Uh, you know, some of them, okay, they're obviously critical of one politician or another, but to really uh, can, it sort of continuously be questioning, okay, what, what's this, what am I being encouraged to think about here? What am I not being encouraged to think about? Where does this message come from? And, you know, some of these fundamental questions, yeah, they just need to be asked over and over again. And I really think we're at kind of a Hmm, a, a moment where it's not clear what this moment will look like, you know, looking back, mm. uh, how we took, you know, did we, did we learn uh, or, or do we, are we sort of headed for some more 2016 election type situations? So Jennifer, even in 2019, are we still falling for, it's there, it looks official, it must be true? You know, it's interesting too, and and I found this doing. You know, I've been I've been radio for uh, oh my, I don't want to tell you now, uh, thirty five years, fifteen doing talk radio, mm-hmm. and it seems that the line has blurred between commentary and reporting. 
Um, you know, I, I'm a talk show host, so my job is opinion, my job is commentary, and hopefully do it in as balanced a way I can and, and try to, you know, have, have both sides represented. But I'm, I'm not a reporter. That's not what my job is. And I think a lot of people listen to what I do or, uh, or others like me and refer it to a, a newscast. Just the same, I think newscasts are becoming a little bit more editorialized where, you know, uh, the reporter gets to offer an opinion or a line after they have told the story. And I think that's also confusing uh, the user as well. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a, a great point, and I think that gets into that, the question of, of social media. I mean, that gets us into the just, it's hard to draw clear clear lines. I mean, even drawing the line yeah. of what's radio and what's, you know, yeah. radio lines blur with social media, etc. But absolutely, and look at what happened with, what is happening with comedy, comedy and news. I mean, talk mm-hmm. radio and news mm-hmm. sort of blurring. We have, you know, yeah. when John Stewart, when it, yeah. are, right? I mean, all kinds of people. If you present it like a newscast, all of a sudden it's not a, well, you look at Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. They've been doing that for like 30 some odd years. Right. I mean, and we would think, oh, well, the comedy lens that we know what, what's going on here. But, sure. you know, it, it, the, the line, and all the, I would say, all the more reason why media literacy is, is vital. Yeah. Because it's not about what's news and what you know what's real and unreal and and news i think part of it was there was a danger all along in news as objectivity what what is what does that mean right so if we can sort of break out of some of that thinking and and do more uh, sort of a broader kind of okay what what are the sources that somebody is drawing on what, you know what do those sources have to say you know if i think take a step back and and i'm trying to make sense of some issue uh, you know, how else might I make sense of this issue? And that, that kind of, of thinking will, will serve us well across uh, all those lines, all those blurry lines. We often think that, you know, and you're talking about media li- literacy as well, that, you know, it, it's a case of uh, educating the older generation and how to use social media and how to keep up with what the younger generation is doing. That being said, is it harder for the younger generation to... Uh, identify this, absorb this, what we're talking about, simply because this is all they've been exposed to. They didn't see the transition from old to new. Huh. I mean, I, that's, I think that's a great question. I mean, I, that's I, the only option they know. Well, and does that make them more likely to just kind of give themselves over to what, you know, yeah. or does it make it easier to, to introduce critical thinking and have them ask sort of fundamental questions because they are so just uh, uh, sort of steeped in, in, in all of this content that, that they're not trying to think along formal lines like you were just describing, right? right? They, they think more broadly than, than we do, or that maybe that's the hopeful uh, possibility. How much of this has to do just with a massively wide generation gap between two generations, one where this is normal and one where they've had a bit of both? I mean, this seems to be the biggest generation gap of of the last century almost. A generation gap in terms of how the knowledge and how and knowledge of the internet and and how we're receiving it, how we're interpreting it. Um, it seems to have really divided people in a way, right? Well, as well as bring them together. I mean, where I'm just talking about the negative aspect. Yeah, but. I mean, I don't know how much of it is a generational is is generational. That would be a great. I mean, I haven't I have not come across that that research. I think that research would be would be really interesting. 
mean, my... I mean, my sense is there's a generational gap, absolutely, on just using these two, you know, these different, you know, whatever. There's yeah. the YouTube jokes about uh, old people use Facebook, or you know, um, <laughs> yeah, and, those are funny. Yeah, right. The, the grandparent that gets Alexa for the first time, right, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. right. So <laughs> yeah. those are those are funny, uh, but I'm not sure that that we can then sort of jump from that to sort of the critical analysis of of that right. of that content. Um, I, yeah, I think it's it's more complicated, and I wouldn't necessarily think that just because uh, you know my my parents or my parents' generation grew up with some of those cleaner lines between media right. and, and that that their ability to think critically across all of that would would mm. yeah be weaker. Good point. Okay, two more questions. Yes. What should users do? And what should the media do? Let's start with the media. What should the media do to because really they're they're finding themselves defending the, what they do now. Well, I mean, so I I would say add add media literacy, add critical thinking in into that mix of how these stories are being told, and and so like this conversation piece that I wrote, uh, I, I was. Is sort of highlighting that absolutely we're talking about Facebook and Twitter and and all, right we're talking about we're talking about trolls we're talking about just all the different sort of stories but within there what about saying okay policies laws you know the the different sort of regulatory apparatus uh, let's also talk about Thinking critically, thinking, be, you know, how do we get people not just to stop? Like, how do you, you yeah. know, what does it look like? To Beyond stop? clickbait. What's that? Beyond clickbait. Yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. We yeah. need, exactly. We need to move beyond and be much more sophisticated in how uh, uh, we're we're dealing with this. Uh, to get people, right. To and what about the user that's got to consume all this and wade their way through it? We've only got about 30 seconds. I, I would say the young, uh, you know, for those with kids in school and so on, make sure, uh, you know, sort of put, speak out for media literacy. Uh, for those, the older uh, of us, I think maybe we need to regularly pause and say, ask ourselves, whose story is this and why are they telling this story in this way and what stories are missing? All right, you can find all this in the conversation. The Urgent Need for Media Literacy in an Age of Annihilation. The author is Jennifer Ellen Good, Associate Professor of Communications, Pop Culture and Film at Brock University. Fascinating stuff, Jennifer, and uh, I think you'll be doing some research for a while. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much, Scott. All right, you take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, she is the proprietor behind Cons and Kernels. Popcorn so good, it's criminal. Uh, Emily O'Brien is with her, founder of Cons and Kernels, and on the line now. Emily, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. <laughs> no problem. Do you know how many versions there are of the song Popcorn, or do you even get involved with this sort of conversation? Um, not yet, but I'm pretty interested, actually. <laughs> it might be a marketing tool for you. Who knows? There you go. So tell us, uh, first of all, tell us about your business. Tell us about Cons and Kernels. Sure, yeah. So I'm Hamilton-based, and it's a healthy gourmet popcorn company that um, I started when I was in federal prison, and now I'm on some retail shelves. So, so, <laughs> so how long how, how long uh, has this company been around? How long have you been in business? Um, technically... Six months, so because I just got released um, on December third, two thousand and eighteen. So, yeah, about six months. 
All right. So yeah. uh, uh, tell us how this all, tell us your story. What happened? How did this all come about? How did you get to where you are now? Yeah. So, you know, what? Uh, 2015, just a couple pretty big mistakes, um, some substance abuse. I was always a pretty, uh, I was always like a really good kid, but um, unfortunately I just dealt with some things the wrong way and was doing a lot of drugs at a point in my life and drinking a lot. And then I made a bad decision to go on a trip with someone who I shouldn't have gone with to bring narcotics back into Canada and got arrested, mm. spent two and a half years on bail and then uh, was sentenced to four years in prison. And so this, I knew that I was going to prison for a reason and I knew that I had enough motivation and fight in me and goodwill in me to turn the whole thing around. And so um, one day I was just uh, seeing what people were making as their snacks in prison and they were making popcorn and putting unique uh, combinations of spices on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. Like, I'm going to start a popcorn company um, and build it so that it can actually employ people eventually down the, down the road that has done time as well because I know how hard it it is to reintegrate once you've done time. So, What was your life like before you were arrested? How old were you when you got arrested? I was 26. Right. Yeah. So, and, yeah. So what right. was your life like before that? What was your upbringing like? My upbringing was, was great. I grew up with two great parents uh, in a great neighborhood in Westdale. Um, high school, I, you know, had my high school issues, you know, like being rebellious and mm-hmm. drinking and stuff. But I always got good grades. I got into university. I graduated university on a roll. So, you know, I, I had everything under control from my perspective, from my point of view. Um, and then when I moved to Toronto in 2014 or 13 or 14, I started my own business there mm-hmm. and kind of fell into, it was, there was a lot more drugs like in the neighborhood that I was living in. There's like a lot of right. and stuff. So, Sorry, a lot of a lot of cocaine there. Right. It was, just, it was just normal. Like, everywhere you went, I would find it on the ground sometimes. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it was just crazy. So, so um, uh, eventually you ended up with a substance abuse problem. Is that safe? Yeah, 100%. And largely cocaine? Yeah, cocaine and alcohol mm-hmm. combined, for sure. It was, but it was never, like, it was never physically dependent. Right. I, I, was, I really liked the environment. You know, I liked being out. I liked socializing. I liked being around people. Right. And the, the groups that I frequented with were people that also did the same thing, which is why it became normal to me. So what were, you doing, what were you doing to make a living at this point in your life? Are we still in school? Were you finished school by this point? Yep. So I'd finished school, and then I'd traveled abroad to Indonesia and a couple other countries, because that's what my degree was in, was in international development. So I did some, some work internationally, and then I moved to Toronto to start my own social media company because I'd built up like a decent following and people mm-hmm. kind of liked the way that I posted and I guess like the candor and the posts and stuff. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll try this because I've always been pretty entrepreneurial. And even when I've worked within organizations, I've, I've liked to kind of put my own personal twist on things or at least try. Right. Um, so yeah, so that actually went, went really well. And I was living downtown in Liberty Village with a roommate. So our rent was a lot cheaper. So life was pretty good. Yeah, it was good. It was. It and was then you you ju- you made a mistake. Yeah, I did a hundred percent. And and this and, ba- and sorry, I, I don't you, you don't you don't tell me anything you don't want to t- you tell me. But basically, you were involved in drug trafficking. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. And, and got charged with that. Yeah. Yeah. What? I never saw my life going there. That's for sure. You know, from like on a roll, building your own business to now being on house arrest and my parents had to come bail me out of jail and it was just 
so embarrassing. I I didn't really realize the extent of how much trouble I was I was really in. Um, um what, what was your family life like? What, what what did they say when this happened? They were shocked, like of course, because yeah. you know they they were scared. You know, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They were ha- they were so happy that I was okay and alive. Mm-hmm. But I think they were just like, oh my gosh, like how did it happen, right? And. How did it happen? How do you explain? Because it sounded like you grew up in a pretty good life. You, you know, you were loving life. You were doing what you wanted to do. You went to school. You got a good education. Mm-hmm. As you look back on, and, and now it's probably too early to look back. If I asked you this 10 years ago or 10 years from now, it might be a different story. But as you look back on now on the mistake that you made, how do you, how do you, how do you capsulize it? Um, I would say I invested my time a lot in helping other people and sometimes helping other people with the wrong things. So, you know, mm-hmm. I was in a relationship with someone that right. I thought was honest, was being honest, and he'd always been really, really nice to me and kind to me and never abusive. And then when we go on this trip, like, he asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said no, and then he asked me again just to come on the trip. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, like, I guess I'll just go, because he said nothing could happen, and, that, again, me being ignorant. And, yeah. you know, when when you're in relationships, like, you turn blind eyes all the time. Yeah. So like what what your significant other is doing because you have this bond, right? And when uh, did you when yeah. did you realize? Oh my God, this is uh, I've screwed up this time. I'm 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 in trouble. When did you realize that? Um, I would say it was like after my parents had to come bail me out of prison and, or out of jail, and it was fifty thousand dollars, and they had to put up part of their house. Hmm. But I still didn't think it was that big of a deal because he had told me that oh like. If we get caught, it's, it won't be your fault. It'll be all on me. So I was like ready to go home. You know, I was like, yeah. oh, like, this is what he told me. You know, like, yeah. I've never been like in, I've involved in this kind of thing before. Like I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I was just I was a terrible criminal, pretty much. <laughs> so what did the judge say to you during all this process? The judge gave me uh, eight mitigating factors for why that I got the sentence that I did, and the first was that I admitted guilt very early. Like, I just wanted to finalize the proceedings. The other ones included really strong family support, uh, really solid reference letters, and I I had the resume to back it up with my work. I also volunteered, and I went to um, a whole bunch of programs. So they said that I did tremendously well on bail um, for considering the case. Mm Mm-hmm. And that I I showed really true motivation to to turn my life around because I knew I was capable of it. Like, despite how mad I was about the whole thing, like, I eventually let that go. Yeah. You know, these things take time. You can't just expect things to, you, like, see the meaning in it, like, right away, right? You have to go through right. all the all the motions and the pain and everything like that. So how long did you actually spend in prison? I spent 10 months. Wow, that's long enough. Um, so you know you're going to jail. You know what you've done is wrong. You know you're going to get convicted. How yeah. do you get your head around this? What were your plans going in? My plans going in were, actually, I was excited. I was looking forward to it. As strange. As Why? Was. Why were you looking forward to this? Because I knew that it was the, it was the end. Like, there was no more. Oh, it's over. You're Now you're serving your time, and now I can move on. Yeah, exactly. And now I can really... I can be away from society, which is what I think I needed. Like, I think I needed to just go sit and think and mm-hmm. get healthy again and, and get sober, like, for good um, and really develop more empathy for people. Like, I was always really kind, but I still didn't understand. Right. Um, even, like, why I did what I did mm-hmm. and why I needed to think about that. And the, provi- the federal jail, 
the federal prison has a lot more resources than the provincial jail is. So I actually knew someone that had gone in. I've always been very resourceful, so I was able to kind of research the facility, research, you know, what it was like, what I was going to have there. And then I met someone uh, by chance that I'd actually done time for the same thing that I was going in for. And so she was kind of like my coach. Right. And she helped me a lot. So I, I was ready and I was excited because I, I, I knew that I could make the change and I knew that I was ready. It was almost like it was a project for you. Yeah. 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 So, so what was it like in there for you? Um, the first ten days I spent in provincial, so that was not the, not the greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that I wasn't there for very long. Mm-hmm. And then after I went to federal, so you live in a house with a bunch of other inmates, mm-hmm. and I had I shared a room for the first little bit, and then um, I got my own room, and it kind of looks like a, a dorm room, right? With your own, you get your own clothes. And, 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 pe- TV. and yeah. people who have committed similar crimes to you? Yes. Right. Yeah. So unless you've been convicted of a very violent offense, right. everyone goes to the same part of the prison. It's called general population. Right. Until they're assessed as either you're going to stay there or you're going to go to minimum. And so mm-hmm. I spent about three months in general before I moved up the hill to minimum security. So what did you learn from this? I learned that it's always important to be a good person because when we, when we, when we fall and we do fall, and everyone will just in different ways. Like you want people to kind of help you back up. So like at that, it was good that I'd spent a lot of my life, you know, helping others and and showing that I was a good person because people knew that that's who I really was. Who so they they wanted to see me do. They wanted to see me like make the most out of the situation and, and really turn it around because I knew I could. And I knew that it's, I, you have to like trust your instincts. Like I knew that what I was doing was, was wrong, but I, I let someone else kind of yeah convince me otherwise. And I knew the substances had a lot to do with that as well. Like substances, substances fabricate everything. Like mm. from chemistry to like what you think is true and what do you think is not. And they, yeah, it's, it, it was just a, a nightmare for me. So, and I know that going to substances is a way to medicate, yeah. not just celebrate, but like medicate is. Yeah. So, what were you? What were you? They say that sometimes you're running from something. What were you? What was the medication doing for you? What was it? Because it, it appeared like you had everything. What was missing? Um, like I was just going through something with my family. Like my family split up, and it was hard for me. Yeah. Because everyone in our family loves each other so much, you know, mm-hmm. and. That way, and it was it was just it kind of came out of left field, so that was hard for me. And yeah. I know that these things are a part of life. Like, yeah, so but I'm still, but still, a change in life, a change in your in your in your life like that, that's that's going to have an impact. Yeah, for sure. And I just I went to the thing that I knew, and it was easy because I was already in it. And yeah, the family situation just exasperated the right. youth that I already had. So how did so once you got into prison? When did again you were uh, well? T- tell the story about how you got into uh, popcorn and the and how the whole cons and kernel thing started. Yeah. So when I got there, I noticed there were so many people in there for like the same thing as me. Or if they weren't, I noticed that they all just wanted to get out and they all wanted a second chance. Like it wasn't just me; it was like an anomaly. You know, everyone in there was was trying to do better with their lives and they just wanted a, a chance. And so, like, me being, again, the creative person that I am, I, you know, just did my thing until I 
found that spontaneous moment and when people were popping popcorn and and then I began to think about it. I was like, what kind of Canadian companies are out there that, you know, have a healthier take on popcorn and that can maybe do something a little bit more than just provide a snack, a snack food. And so that's why I wanted my company to be something more. And that's by providing reintegration opportunities for people that do go to prison and are having more difficulty coming out. Because I think there's one degree of separation when it comes to, like, forgiveness. Like, it's a lot easier for me to move back into Hamilton, into a halfway house where people know who I am to forgive me. Yeah. And so it makes my success a little bit easier. But some people are coming out of prison and they know no one and, like, they don't even have a family. What do people say when you tell them your story? They say, like, holy crap, like, I would have never have thought that about you, but I... I know you well enough to... Do you find that they do judge you and say, oh, you went to prison? What happened? Oh, my goodness. Um, do they judge they you? No more. Um, nothing, like, not to my face. Like, they might yeah, in yeah. their own in their own houses, but, like, I've received pretty good, pretty good feedback just because I've been so open about it. Yeah. And, uh, and obviously have taken it to, you know, and made an advantage out of it. So how yeah. much of this was actually, uh, again, give us a bit of a timeline here on how this company started in there and then how you transformed it out of prison. Yep. So I started working, uh, I had a, a friend on the outside and he, um, he'd known me for a couple of years. And I was you had him. a popcorn friend on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> and, my buddy. and he's like, let's turn this into a business. Cause it's like, it's all hunky-dory to, like, you know, have a single-person business, but, like, we want to build something that could possibly scale, that could yeah. really make an impact and, and really make a change. And so he would actually do market research, and he would also send me in market research, just, like, what was out there, and then we designed the logo, like, back and forth via snail mail, and then he bought the domain, and, like, I would be live blogging, so I'd write articles and post it on the blog. Like, I would mail the blog articles out to him, and he would post it, so to kind of get people interested before I was even out of prison. And mm. then the prison warden let me out for a day to go promote it at an event in Hamilton called Take Back the Night. So it was the first time they'd ever wow. made out. What, a, what an amazing story. You get out <laughs> to promote your company. Can I have a day pass to promote my company? My goodness, yeah. you are a model prisoner. You are exactly what they're trying to do in there. My goodness. Yeah. Um, so talk about the whole Dragon's Den experience. What happened with that? Yeah, so I, um, when I was in there, I read 82 books, and one of those books was Dave Chilton's book, The Wealthy Barber, and I wrote an article yep. called The Relatively Wealthy Inmate, talking about how, even though you're paid, like, nothing in there, how to kind of, like, use the money that you made in prison to yeah. push you forward into the community or in, and how to apply Dave's principles to, like, everyday life. Mm -hmm. And um, so I ended up sending it to his office, and I was like, hey, is it okay if I post it on my blog? And his assistant read it and was like to Dave, oh, Dave, like, you got to check this girl out. And so Dave emailed me through the email that my business partner was checking for me because I didn't have access to the right. internet. And was like, oh, I want to meet you. I'm going to help you. And so he helped me like, make some connections and in the industry. And then once I got out, I was just promoting, promoting, doing events, like selling. And, and how long story. have you been out? Sorry, how long have you been out again? Six months. So what was it like for you to get out and transform this from what was you, you, you produced on the inside to now reality and you're out? What was oh, that like? I was so excited. It was, it was so exciting because I knew that I like nothing was going to get in my way now. You know, like I've, I'm completely like off alcohol, off drugs, and I've been off it for over a year and a half and I do not want to go back. And now that I know I'm like not at risk for that anymore, 
Um, like I could just focus 100%, 300% on this, and every day is so different and, and good, and I'm getting tons of positive feedback to keep going and how I've even helped people in ways that I didn't even think I could help them. Yeah, I'm sure you're an inspiration to all, all those that were with you in prison. Yeah. Good for even, you. Just if you're not in a physical prison, sometimes you can feel like you're in one, like a mental prison, yeah. or like a financial prison, like you can yeah. get out. So. so what's next for you, Emily? Do you, do you just want to keep taking this as far as you can? I mean, or is just par- is popcorn just the first of many great adventures that you're going on? Popcorn is just one of many great adventures. Like, I I want to grow this just so that, like, other people can, can run it eventually, so that inmates can, can run it. Because there's so much, so much talent that goes, like, unnoticed. Like, just basically people that come out of prison, right? So I want to focus more on the speaking eventually and, and writing and doing videos. And then we'll go from there. Are yeah, you surprised? Was, at your, are you surprised at what you've become out of all of this, Emily? Um, no, because my parents raised me that way. They, <laughs> since I was a kid, they were like, "Emily, you are capable of so much." And you know, they are always putting me in programs, always encouraging me to like try out for the best team, like the hardest team, mm. to challenge myself. And because I have this energy that like my other sisters don't don't really have. And Did boredom get you into trouble? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I hear that. <laughs> yeah, Emily, congratulations! My goodness, what an incredible story! Like, honestly, <laughs> uh, beyond cons and kernels, you got to get out and tell this because you're going to inspire a lot of people with his story. It's incredible. Thank you, Emily O'Brien's been with us, founder of Cons and Kernels. Hey, if we want to buy your stuff, where do we go? Yeah, you can go. So in Hamilton, I'm in two spots right now. It's at 414 Barton Street East in the YWCA Out of the Box Project. And then the Hornet Party is still in Buffalo. And you can also order it online off my site. And then uh, I just deliver it. I do events and everything like that, too. So All right. Uh, consandkernels.com if you want to find out more, including Emily's story. Emily, uh, thanks so much for sharing the story. Thanks so much for the time. And good luck. Way to pay it Thank forward. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. Emily O'Brien, founder of Cons and Kernels, and you can check out the website and read the story at uh, consandkernels.com. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And, uh, boy, I think there's a lot of brighter things in Emily's future over and above popcorn. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.